This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. You know, sometimes um, we have an overly romanticized view of what it means to be in communion with God or to experience His presence. Um, we're going to be looking at a story today, though, that shows us sometimes God doesn't come into our lives in order to fill us with warmth and joy. Sometimes God comes into our lives in order to pick a fight with us. But as we'll see, um, that's not the end of the story. God doesn't come into our lives, explode into our lives to pick a fight with us in order to destroy us. He's after something much better. He's after something much more beautiful. There's a story of an individual in our congregation who it serves as an extraordinary example of this. Before we dive into the text, I want to show you this story. Take a look. It was a very uh, moving time in my life after everything I had, had been through it. When I look at my past, I, there's conflicting things happening because I always believed there was a God and that I had to figure out what my purpose for being on earth was. But at the same time, I felt like I must have done something really horrible that I was kept being punished through my life and I thought God was doing that. So there was a huge confusion happening in me. I dated a guy for three years that loved me with every fiber of his being, but he held me on a pedestal for what he wanted me to be. He wanted to be a doctor. Um, and in that, I felt that I needed to keep him happy, which included having a sexual relationship with him. I ended up getting pregnant at 18. He wanted me to go to a halfway house and have a baby while he went on to med school. Um, I was enough of a self-righteous person to say that's not happening. I'm going to go to college too and had an abortion. I was afraid it would disgrace my father. My mother helped pay for it. Um, having an abortion leaves a hole in your life that um, never gets filled. Um, I couldn't imagine how I was going to keep going at that point, although I did. Um, went to college, tried to forget about it. Um, you don't. Graduated from college and um, met Ed during college, my husband. When Ed and I were dating and contemplating getting married, I told him about the abortion. And he just said, well, we'll figure it out. In 1994, um, my kids were five, three, and seven months. I was coming home at night after a, a snowstorm where there was two feet of snow all along the highways. And um, Ed was home doing our taxes. And I was leaving one highway, getting on another highway, and I saw a car that was black on the side of the road with flashers on. And I knew that car was there, and I knew it was at the point where I was going to merge onto the other highway. 
as I was coming, there was a truck coming over the overpass of the other highway, and I thought it was going to hit us. And I thought, oh my gosh, we're going to die. And I moved over in my lane because the car was right up in the shoulder onto the lane, and I did not see a woman, and I hit her, and she died. I pulled over, and there was a gentleman there that had helped this woman change her flat tire. Um, and he realized I didn't know that I had hit a woman. And uh, we tried to flag down cars, which took a little bit. Um, the police came, ambulances came. And that was probably the worst day of my life. I didn't know how I was gonna keep going forward except for that my parents always went forward. And I knew I didn't wanna have suicide be an option and have my kids have to deal with that on top of being in the car for that accident. I figured I was never going to be happy in my life again. I would never feel joy. I would never laugh. I ate myself to 267 pounds. Um, was totally depressed and started having flashbacks to the car accident. I was sent to a psychiatrist and I was diagnosed as being bipolar too which is a milder form of bipolar, where you tend to stay level and you fall into depressions. I was not gonna let it define who I was. It was just something I have to deal with in my life. There's always a part of me that felt like you've, I, to be blunt, you've killed two people. How, how could you feel joy? How are you allowed to feel joy? It wasn't until I got baptized two years ago that I really felt forgiveness by God. God blessed me again from 2010 to now. I have not fallen into that deep of depression, which is only God. It can only be God, I realize now. I started my journey to accepting Christ as my Savior, and um, now there's a peace for me when my anxiety gets a little over the top. It's so fun to say I feel a joy I've never felt in my life. I just feel like my life is so much richer with the people I've met at our previous church and here and my good friend Beth. And, um, it's nice to say I'm happy. I'm, I'm truly, wholly happy and content and at peace and feel loved. Steph's story serves as a vivid and extraordinary example that sometimes God doesn't sanction the circumstances and events of our lives in such a way as to fill us with warmth and joy. Sometimes God breaks into our lives in order to tussle with us, to pick a fight, not because he's out to get us, but sometimes that's the way he prefers to work in order to get a changed life. We're gonna see that story reflected in the passage of scripture we're looking at today. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Genesis 32. Genesis 32, we're gonna take one last look at Jacob. He's not a model we're to follow. 
But his story serves as an encouragement to us. And as we'll see, sometimes a relationship with God requires some wrestling. So let me pick up the story. Genesis 32, I'm going to start reading in verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Yabak. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. In this story, God comes to Jacob not to comfort him, not to encourage him. God comes to him in order to disturb him and pick a fight with him. So we're going to look at this under four headings this morning. We're going to look at the reason for it, the arena for it, the desired outcome of it, and what it takes to win. Reason for it, the arena for it, the desired outcome of it, what it takes to win. First, the reason for it. Now let's set the stage here. Jacob and Esau are twin brothers. Esau is older. Jacob has gotten the better of his brother at every turn. Jacob tricked his brother Esau into giving him his birthright. He deceitfully swiped uh, Esau's blessing out from underneath him. So at every turn, Jacob has gotten the better of of Esau. Now, how do you think Esau feels about this? Well, he's torqued. He's ticked off. He wants blood. Jacob knows that, and so he got a dodge. He left. He, he was not going to have anything to do with this. He knew that his brother, if he got his hands on him, could do unspeakable things to him. But here in Genesis 32, God has commanded Jacob to go back home and face his brother. How do you think Jacob feels about that? Well, on the one hand, he's got to be scared out of his mind. I mean, on the one hand, he's got to be thinking to himself, God, are you kidding me? You know what, what Esau does. He's a skilled outdoorsman. He knows how to use all kinds of weapons. You know what he's going to do to me? On the other hand, Jacob has to be thinking to himself, you know, <laughs> my life would be so much better if Esau would just go away. If he'd just go away, if he'd just disappear, my life would be so much better. I wouldn't have to be looking out the corner of my eye, over my shoulder, wondering if Esau's there. My life would be better if Esau just would go away. Jacob thinks Esau is his real problem. Esau is the one standing in his way of achieving all he wants to achieve, of being all he wants to be. But after Jacob's wrestling match with God... His encounter with Esau goes wonderfully. It couldn't have gone better. It shouldn't have, but it did. You see, Jacob discovers that his real problem in life is not Esau. 
His real problem isn't with Esau. It's with God. Underneath his relational problems with Esau are his relational problems with God, and until his relationship with God gets resolved, his conflict with Esau is going to continue. We do this all the time. We constantly look at the world around us and we point our fingers at Esau's. We constantly point our fingers at what we think to be our real problem. My spouse is the reason my life is one of perpetual discouragement. My job is the reason I'm dissatisfied. My financial position is the reason I'm constantly stressed out. My kids are the reason I don't have peace. This person in my life is the reason I'm agitated. Having a Vikings fan as a pastor is why I'm so disturbed. (laughs) We always think our problems are outside ourselves. Everywhere we look, we see Esau's, and we say that's the real problem. But what we need to see is that our real problem is not out there. It's in here. Your real problem is not with your spouse, your job, your money, your kids, or that person. Your real problem is your relationship with God. And until that gets fixed, Esau may kill you. Your problems in life may overwhelm you. You're not going to be able to handle all the Esau's that life throws at you. Jacob's conflict with God, his unhealthy relationship with God, was the root cause for his problem with Esau. And until he got things straightened out with God, his conflict with Esau is going to continue. If Jacob hadn't had worked things out with God, how do you think his meeting with Esau would have gone? Probably not well. The text seems to indicate Jacob's meeting with Esau went well because of what happened in the passage we're looking at, because he got things ironed out with God. Now, we have problems, we have conflicts, whether it's your spouse, your job, your kids, your money, whatever. Everybody has problems, everybody has conflicts. But until you see that your real problem is with God, you'll never be able to handle those other conflicts. In fact, the conflicts you're experiencing today, the problems you're experiencing today might be because your relationship with God is not right. Let me take this one step further. Even if your problem is completely the other person's fault and you are 100% innocent, a victim, you won't be able to deal with it until you see your relationship with God is the key to handling those things. Some of you might be genuinely innocent victims, but you're angry, you're bitter, you're nursing a grudge. Why? Because you're not right with God. You know why you're angry? You know why you're bitter? You know why you're nursing grudges? If you scrape away all the stuff on the surface, you know why you're holding on to those things? Because you think God has royally messed up your life. We get angry, we we hold on to bitterness, we nurse grudges because we knew exactly how our lives were supposed to go, but God got it wrong. Is that a correct view of God? The reason we can't handle the situation is that underneath the surface, we're not right with God. Now, we do this all the time. We misread and we misinterpret the events of our lives every day. Every day we do this. There's a story told of a couple who, this was many years ago, they decided to vacation to Florida during the winter because they wanted to stay in the same hotel where they had spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. 
But because of hectic schedules, it was really difficult to coordinate their travel plans. So here's what they decided. The husband would fly down to Florida on Thursday, and the plan would be to have his wife join, um, join him on Friday. So the husband did. He flew, down, uh, he flew down to Florida. He checked into the hotel, and there was a computer in his room, so he decided to send an email to his wife. However, he accidentally left out one letter in her email address, and without realizing his error, he sent the email. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, a widow had just returned home from her husband's funeral. He was a pastor of many years, and he was called home to glory following a sudden heart attack. The widow decided to check her email, expecting messages from relatives and friends, but after reading the first message, she fainted. Her her son rushed into the room, finding his mother on the floor, and then he saw the computer screen, and on the computer screen, it said this, to my loving wife, Subject, I've arrived. (laughs) This is what it said. I know you're surprised to hear from me. (laughs) They have computers here now and you're allowed to send emails to your loved ones. (laughs) I've just arrived and have been checked in. I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is not as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is hot down here. (laughs) We misread and misinterpret the circumstances of our lives all the time. God uses the trials, the adversities of everyday life to show us that our real problem is in our hearts. It's not in our circumstances. Because Jacob's relationship with God isn't right, he's got problems in other areas of his life. So God comes to him not to comfort him, but to disturb him. That might be true of you as well. Maybe your relationship with God isn't right. And because of that, you've got problems in other areas of your life. So maybe God's coming to you not to comfort you, but to disturb you. Not to fill you with joy, but to pick a fight with you. Second, the arena for it. On the morning of the day in which Jacob would find himself fighting with God, I am pretty sure he didn't wake up asking himself, what trouble can I get into today? Who can I fight with? He did not wake up asking himself those questions. He woke up that day as he did every other day. He probably kept the same routines. And God doesn't come to him in a gentleman, chivalry sort of way and say, hey, you know, Jacob, uh, some problems between the two of us. You know, we need to get these things sorted out. No, God doesn't, doesn't confront Jacob through a calm, rational conversation over a cup of coffee. God jumps him. It's a physical ambush. He masks his identity. God dresses up as another human being, leading Jacob to believe he's just fighting with a thug. Jacob thinks he's getting ambushed by a rogue criminal. This is not a transcendent experience for him. This is not some knock-your-socks-off angelic visit like the one Mary and the shepherds had. This is a frightening experience for Jacob, but not completely unheard of. They have thieves in that time, in that place. He's out alone in the wilderness. He's in an ideal spot to get jumped. 
Sure, it's scary, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. See, God uses a reasonable experience within everyday life to confront and break Jacob. Use a reasonable experience within everyday life to confront and break Jacob. Fighting with God happens in the rhythms of everyday life. Now, here's what's so deep about this. Like Jacob, you might think you're fighting with a crazy person when, in fact, you're actually wrestling with God. You might think you're just dealing with the tough stuff of life when, in fact, you're wrestling with God. God will come to you, confront you, and break you in the rhythms of everyday life, and God may use the trials and adversities of everyday life to confront and break you. And this should serve as a wake-up call to us. It might be that the tough stuff that we're facing right now is not just normal tough stuff. It might be the tough stuff we're dealing with is God picking a fight with us to show us that there's something off about our relationship with him. Third, the desired outcome of it. So if God is using the experiences of everyday life to confront me and show me my relationship with him isn't right, what is the most desirable outcome of this? Take a look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, they just stopped there. Does anything about that not make sense? The very next phrase says, all this man has to do is lightly touch Jacob's hip and he was maimed for life. A light touch of the hip was all this man had to do in order to dislocate it, sending Jacob into a writhing pain. And you're telling me this guy cannot overpower him? I mean, if a light touch to the hip dislocates it, what would a stout whack to the gut do? If that, what would that have done to him? It would have destroyed him. It would have destroyed him. And if that was God's objective, he could have done it easily. So destroying Jacob can't be the desired outcome of this confrontation. The tough stuff of life that God may be confronting you with is not for the purpose of destroying you. So what is it? Why does God wrestle with Jacob without the intent of destroying him? What does he want? What's he after? What's, what is the desired outcome? Why, why has he picked a fight with you? He wants a changed life. Jacob's name is changed from Jacob to Israel. This signifies much more than a change in title or label. It signifies a changed life, a changed identity. So on the one hand, if God doesn't break him, if he doesn't confront him with tough stuff, he doesn't get a changed life. If God doesn't break Jacob, Jacob continues to be Jacob. On the other hand, if he destroys him, he doesn't get a changed life. The reason God has picked a fight with Jacob is to transform him. So has God picked a fight with you? He is not doing it to destroy you. That's not the desired outcome of this. He's doing it to change you. God may be using reasonable experiences within your daily life to show you your relationship with him isn't right. Your view of him is off. He might be using the pain in your life not to destroy you, but change you. 
There's a very important reason we need to experience this kind of transformation. The geography of this wrestling match is significant. It took place on the banks of the Yabak, which is a tributary of the Jordan River. This fight took place on the outskirts of the promised land, which to the people of Israel was to be the place of rest and wholeness and peace. God did not allow Jacob to enter it unchanged. God did not allow Jacob to enter the promised land until he received a new name. You're not going to experience rest and peace and wholeness until you too have been transformed. You can't inherit the promised land until you have a new name. See, God doesn't disturb us to destroy us. He disturbs you to change you and save you. In fact, fighting with God in the rhythms of everyday life sometimes brings about a kind of transformation that yields a rest you can't find anywhere else. There is something, something deeply satisfying about the rest that awaits those who have been transformed by God's discipline. A man by the name of Parnell Bailey once visited an orange grove where an irrigation pump had broken down. The season was unusually dry and some of the trees were beginning to die for lack of water. The man giving them the tour then took Bailey to his own orchard where irrigation was actually used sparingly. He said to him, these trees could go without rain for another two weeks. You see, when they were young, I frequently kept water from them. This hardship caused them to send their roots deeper into the soil in search of moisture. Now mine are the deepest rooted trees in the area. While others are being scorched by the sun, these are finding moisture at a greater depth. God doesn't send hardship into our lives in order to cause us to wither. He disturbs us so that we'll send our roots deeper. So lastly, let's take a look at what it takes to win. Jacob is declared the winner of this fight. The divine man says to him, you have struggled with God and humans and have overcome. That word overcome is the word of victory. Jacob won. How did he win? tell you how he won. He won because he held tightly to God even at the height of his pain. That's how he won. He held tightly to God even at the height of his pain. Jacob has been fighting with this guy all night, the text says. And at the very end, after hours of wrestling, when he's most exhausted, when he's most frustrated, all this guy does is lightly touch Jacob's hip and the game is over. So how does a frustrated, exhausted man respond to being so easily beaten in the 11th hour? If you've ever played sports, you know what he's going through at this point. When you've been contending, when you've been battling, when you're in the game, even to the very end, when you're beaten in the 11th hour, that is demoralizing. It's crushing. I don't know that I would have responded the way Jacob did. I'd, I'd be angry. I'd be depressed. I'd throw my arms up in the air. It's not what Jacob did. Jacob held tightly to God at the height of his pain. He held tightly to God at the height of his pain. And what resulted? 
He was blessed, transformed. He got a new name. Holding tightly to God at the height of your pain is what it takes to get blessed. It's what it takes to be transformed. It's what it takes to experience rest. But that is not the reality for most of us. Most of us don't hold tightly to God when our pain hurts the most. What happens in the rhythms of everyday life when when our pain is at its highest? What do we do? When the trials, the adversities start piling up, what do we do? It usually spiritually paralyzes us. When the tough stuff comes, we stop praying. When the tough stuff comes, we stop reading our Bibles. When the tough stuff comes, we, we just stop going to church. We withdraw from our groups. We isolate. Holding tightly to God in the midst of your pain means staying engaged. Means praying twice as much as you did before. Means reading your Bible twice as much as you did before. That's what it takes to win. That's what it takes to get blessed and transformed. That's what it takes to experience rest. And notice in the text that Jacob doesn't get a new name until the end of the struggle. The transformation doesn't come right away. The wrestling match begins and you don't get a name, new name right away. The new name doesn't come until daybreak. The transformation doesn't happen until daybreak. You don't get to enter the promised land, the place of rest until daybreak. He fought until daybreak. He held tightly to God through the darkness and then he was blessed and received a new name. But where does the strength come from to do that? That's hard. I'll tell you where the strength comes from to do that. You wanna know what it takes or how you can hold tightly to God at the height of your pain The only way you're going to be able to do that is to look to Jesus in the gospel. Jesus is the true and better Jacob. He's the true and exceedingly better Jacob. The Bible tells us that on the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, God's justice against our sin. Jesus clothed himself in our sin. He became sin for us. The the cross is God picking a fight with a sin-clothed Jesus. But this isn't the kind of fight that you and I experience when God picks a fight with us. This is not just any fight. This is an ultimate fight. No human being has ever experienced this kind of fight. And why is Jesus going through that? Why is he going through this ultimate fight? Well, unlike Jacob, it's not because his relationship with God the Father isn't right. That's not why he's enduring this. He's enduring the fight of all fights. So all we have to endure is a sprained hip instead of separation from God. In other words, Jesus is enduring the fight of all fights so we don't have to. And on the cross, at the height of Jesus' pain, what is he doing there? He's holding tightly to God. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but at the height of his pain, as he's speaking, as he's praying, as, he, as the words are coming out of Jesus' mouth, at the height of his pain, he's quoting scripture and he's spending time in conversation with God the Father. He's praying. He's holding tightly to God at the height of his pain. Why? Because it's the only way we win. It's the only way we get blessed and transformed. And not only is Jesus holding tightly to God in the height of his pain, what else is he holding tightly to? On the night of his betrayal, Jesus prays this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. 
He's clinging to the thought of being united with his people, with you. On the cross, Jesus is saying to us, if enduring the fight of all fights is what it takes to save you, to one day be united with you, so be it. At the height of my pain, I am clinging to the Father and his sovereignty over the situation and the thought of being with my people forever. So what will you do at the height of your pain? The degree to which you see Jesus enduring the fight of all fights to save you, the degree to which you see Jesus enduring the fight of all fights to bless you, transform you, to make you his son or his daughter, the degree to which you see Jesus doing that for you is the degree to which you will cling to him when it hurts the most. Sure, you'll probably walk away limping, but you'll also walk away blessed, transformed, and victorious. Let's pray. Jesus, remind us that your desire to be with us is strong. You took the insults, the beatings, the crown of thorns, the rejection of your own father in order to bring us to yourself. Even at the height of your pain, you could have come down from there. You could have come down from the cross. You could have called an audible and said, forget it, we're done here. But you stayed. You remained faithful to the Father's will, and because of it, you call us son or daughter. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen us in our pain so that we can cling to you when it hurts the most. Lord, recall to our minds this story of Jacob. You don't pick a fight with us to destroy us. You don't explode into our lives in order to eradicate us. You do so to transform us. So God, I pray we would be ready for it. That we would look to the cross and hold tightly to you through it. It's in your precious, saving, holy, name that we pray these things.